The medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. It comes not from the examination of dead structures, but rather living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Geological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of Chinese medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese medicine. Listen into to these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. 
I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool. A sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hey everybody, welcome back to Geological. I'm really happy today to have the guys from Eastland Press with me, John O'Connor and Dan Bensky. John O'Connor is the general manager of uh, Eastland Press and Dan Bensky, the uh, medical editor. And uh, Eastland Press has been a part of the Chinese medicine world here in the, well, I should say the English speaking Chinese medicine world for quite a while now. And uh, we're, I'm actually here in Seattle at the Eastland Press headquarters. Eastland Press World Headquarters, we're having this conversation. <laughs> so, so Dan and John, welcome to Geological. I'm really happy to uh, have you guys here today. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, you, you guys are synonymous with Chinese medicine publishing, at least among our Chinese medicine world. What, how did you guys get started with this? What inspired you or incited you to start publishing books from Chinese, you know, into English in Chinese medicine? Okay. <laughs> well, I had been living in Macau in 1973. And I was, this was at a time before we had formal relations with the People's Republic. And so you was, couldn't get in there. It was impossible to get in. So I was basically, but it was after the ping pong diplomacy. You may remember Richard Nixon going to China and started the ball rolling towards eventual formal relations. Um, so I, at, at that time, I was 20 years old, 21, 22 years old. And I was just waiting for an opportunity to get into China. I thought, you know, formal relations were were imminent or that there would be some way since I was young and believed that I could do anything that I would be able to worm my way into China. So this would have been, I think, maybe late 1973. Macau is a very small place. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can walk across it in half an hour. And I met Ted Kapchuk, who was also in Macau looking for a place to study Chinese medicine. What were you doing there? I was just, I had some background in Chinese. I was interested in Chinese politics mostly. So my thought was if I was able to get into China, I would uh, travel around and just do writing, some mm -hmm. kind of writing, journalism, that, that type of thing. Ted, on the other hand, was there specifically because he was interested in Chinese medicine and was looking for a suitable school. So he had been, to, he had been I think he apprenticed with somebody in San Francisco and then he found his way to Taiwan. I think he was kicked out of Taiwan because he had long hair. <laughs> I 
found his way to Hong Kong, and there really was nothing going on in Hong Kong at the time. So he came over to Macau, which is sort of, at that time, was like the end of the world. You, you couldn't go beyond Macau. You had to go back to Hong Kong. So when Ted was in Taiwan, he had met Dan, who was... Who was not kicked out of Taiwan. Had, right, who had shorter hair, maybe, now, Ted slightly. Wasn't, Ted wasn't kicked out of Taiwan. He was just... Uh, Ted and I met in 1972, and we were trying to find a place to study Chinese medicine. Mm. It was very tricky for a couple reasons. One, we didn't know anything about Chinese medicine, so we couldn't evaluate what people told us we had to do in order to study. And the other thing was the people who were interested in teaching Chinese medicine as a group weren't interested in teaching people who were white, who were not Chinese. Mm -hmm. And so we, and the school, the main school in Taiwan that taught Chinese medicine at that time had no clinic attached to it. And we knew that we needed to get a clinic. So after together and separately knocking on many, 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 many doors, Ted decided to go try his luck in Hong Kong. I think we didn't even have Macau on the radar looking for a place to study. And we kind of had a few criteria that we had decided for better or worse we had to do one was it had to be an institution not an individual because the individuals were just some of them were just too crazy and we couldn't tell you before. couldn't tell who had the goods and who was that's just right pulling the wool over your eyes and we wanted to have a curriculum that had textbooks because mm -hmm. for the same reason and we had to have clinic as a part of the school. Because again, most places that taught Chinese medicine at that time, you went to, took classes, then you had to find clinic on your own. And we were pretty sure that that would be super difficult for us. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember how he did this, but he found the school in Macau, which was run by the Macau Overseas Chinese Association. So people who, before the Cultural Revolution, had maybe gone to China to study, they couldn't do that anymore. So the, uh, they had actually come out, uh, our teachers had come out related to China's, mainland China's uh, acceptance into the UN. When that happened, a lot of overseas Chinese could get out of mainland China. Mm -hmm. And so it was a school run by an organization that had its own clinic, very, very busy clinic that was part of the training. It had textbooks, so it fit, it fit, checked, the, bill. It fit the bill and that's, uh, how Ted came to Macau. Okay. So I was just kind of a hangers-on. And as they were doing their studying, I had an apartment with Dan after a while. And Dan and Ted and a couple of the other students at the school would come over and practice their acupuncture. And so I served as like a, you know, a patient. You were kind of a bilateral. Yes, exactly. White mouse. <laughs> and then um, in 1974, I think it was summer or fall of 1974, this book appeared, a big book that was published by Shanghai College of Chinese Medicine. So Shanghai it appeared University. on the scene in Macau. It was available in Macau, right. We saw it. It was a really big, very impressive looking book. I still have this copy. Yeah. And we decided, oh, okay this is the book. We're going to have to translate this book because at the time there was really nothing else in English. There were a few paperback books by Felix Mann. And yeah. 
and there was a Czech, it's a book from in English from the Czech Republic on Chinese medicine. I've never heard of that one. That was like the best book in English at the time. Uh huh. So there was nothing. This big book arrives on the scene, and you guys are like, "Hey." I think it's mostly him. Right. Mostly him. <laughs> mostly him. I had nothing to do. Hey, let's plant, let's translate this. Exactly. Thing. I wasn't I wasn't enrolled in the school. So I Why didn't did have any homework. Like a good idea at the time. Because I had nothing else to do. Uh-huh. I really had nothing better to do. It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so we we started putting together a glossary of terms because there were at that time, this was again 1974, there were no um, dictionaries of traditional Chinese medicine at all. I mean there were some Western English to Chinese, Chinese to English uh, dictionaries. For, but, for but nothing specific for medicine. Chinese nothing medicine. specific to Chinese medicine. So um, we started putting a glossary together to get us through, and then we just started. I mean, you know, from page one, <laughs> and we kind of divided things up. And I think at the beginning, our I, our thought was that we we would be able certainly we'd be able to finish this in a year's time. In a year's time. Yeah. Uh huh. So after that, that year had gone delusional, by, but, uh... <laughs> so after the year had gone by, uh-huh. uh, this would have been in 1975. I went back to the United States to finish up my bachelor's degree. Uh, Dan stayed on in Macau and then on, on to Japan, right? In Taiwan and Japan. Yeah. Before going back to Michigan, where you right. finished your degree. That's right. And then I went to grad school in Asian studies and then to law school. And Dan went, after he finished his degree, he went on to osteopathic school. So as you guys are doing all these other things in your life, you're still working away on this book? Yes. Yes. Like in the background. Exactly. You guys are still working on this book. That's right. Okay. In bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. So by the time, um, when did you finish osteopathic school? Uh, 82. So it was before you finished osteopathic school, right right after I finished law school. Mm -hmm. We finally, we had the manuscript translated. And it was done on notebooks in longhand, all of it. Um, and this is a big book, as you know. It's, you've seen, yeah, you've seen yeah, the, it's, it's the comprehensive huge. text. Right, yeah. 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 And uh, almost indecipherable. I mean, I, it was just a, an old bad habit that I had about conserving paper that I wrote on every available uh, you know, space on the page. And so this stuff was crowded on hundreds and hundreds of so thousands was, of pages. So this thing was all written out longhand. Yes. Yes. And then you, I guess what, you had to type it or typeset it? And people type it. We did some of the typing. Other people helped us type it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. And there wasn't anything like a digital backup. Had this, <laughs> had this been lost, you guys would have been like, you'd not, have to commit Harry Carey with a big pen, right? There's, there's no digital. Anymore. Yeah. But okay. um, in, the, in the beginning, anyway. It was around this time that I met my wife, who uh, Patricia, mm-hmm. who has had a small advertising business. She just started in Chicago. I was living in Chicago at the time. Uh, Dan was still in Michigan. Michigan. And they had a a really early version of a PC. Gosh, I can't remember what it was called. Something tech. Um, And so we typed the thing up on this PC. So Mm -hmm. it was almost sounds like a proto PC. Really, really early. Probably so. And then when we had finished it, we started shopping it around. So this is basically six years of work. That's mm-hmm. six years, a little over six years of work at this time. Right. And to our utter amazement, 
no publisher was interested in publishing it. And I, and I'm, I say that not without, with no irony. We were truly amazed because this was, this was the first book of its kind. I mean, it was a true, you know, full length book on acupuncture, a textbook. It wasn't just a gee whiz book about... And not a I little textbook. It was a it was major... It ended up being, yeah. I think, 740 pages. Right. And those are dense pages. You know, yes. Very small type, top and, to bottom. And there's a reason for that, too, which we will get to later. So we talked to people, and, and including... We, we knew some people at World Book Encyclopedia, which was based in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked to them, asked, why is no one interested in publishing this book? And it was because there was no market for it. Which makes perfect sense. It totally makes sense, <laughs> right? There you, guys, no you guys didn't stop to think about that when you began this, did you? Right. No. No. <laughs> exactly. That did not occur to us at all when we were doing the book that there would be that there would be no audience for it. Right. It just was the furthest thing from our mind. Good thing. So, um, so again, in context, I believe at this time, I believe the New England School of Acupuncture was running. And there was no other school of acupuncture in North America, uh, in the United States, for sure. I think that's right. I think they yeah. started 78, 79. Something sometime there. around there. So you got this book. No publishers interested. No publishers were interested. So again, using the same equipment that we, we had at this little advertising firm, we, mm-hmm. we set the whole book. Uh, we printed it out on... So it was like, we'll just, how difficult could this be? We'll do it ourselves. Was it kind of like that? Kind of, except... My memory is uh, John's wife, Patricia, is an extremely good person. And over the course of her career in advertising, she had done lots of favors for lots of different people. <laughs> and she called in lots of those favors to help us, uh, among other things, to get the name of our company. We had people who were very high-priced advertisers who helped us come up with the name Isla Press. Mm-hmm. So for many, many things in this procedure... It wasn't us doing it. We, we didn't do anything. Right. It was Pat's friends, Pat and her friends helping us. So you kind of got lucky in a way. You put this thing together, and then the universe kind of came along and went, let me give you a little help. That's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we, we borrowed money from everybody we knew. Right. Friends, relatives. We were shameless. <laughs> I, had, uh, I was in, finishing up my osteopathic training. I worked with John Upledger at the time. I was his research assistant. And he had someone who was from Australia working with him. And I got them to lend me the money that they had put aside for their plane back to Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So a lot was riding on this book. Yes. And we we published, um, gosh... 2,500, 3,000 copies, maybe 3,000 copies. I want to get back. So the the reason that the type is so dense is they do this thing called specking. People can look at your manuscript and say, oh, if you print it in this kind of way, it's going to be X size. Mm -hmm. And they came up, well, if you do this the normal way, it's like 1,100 pages. Mm -hmm. And so we got costs from the printers it's like, we don't have money to print a book that's 1,100 pages. It has to be under 760, I don't know the exact number, but it has to be under 760 pages. Otherwise, we don't have the money to print it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's so, so they shrink it down the ice type. people that Patricia knew, they, they squeezed everything and we got it under whatever the 
amount of money we had. Right. And, and we had no money. Like when the book went to press, I had a, like an old car, a stereo, and about $76 in my bank account. And that was... Yeah, that was it. I'm sure John was in a right. similar situation. And in those days too, this was really before desktop publishing. Mm-hmm. So we had all of the pages printed out on photo paper, um, which would then be given to the printer, and they would photograph that, and then it would be transferred to plates that they would print from. But you couldn't scan in images. So, for example, Chinese. We had who did the calligraphy for the Chinese characters uh, for the point names? Did Lillian do them herself? So Dan's wife, Lillian, did all, wrote all of the characters. And then we would print those, and then we would glue them onto the page. So there were thousands of individual characters that had to be glued you know, manually onto glued onto the page. Literally cut and pasted. Exactly. exactly. And we finished, and we promised the printer that we would have the printed pages to him at a certain, at a certain time. So we finished late one night. Lillian and I got on the train in Chicago early the following morning. It was very, it was in August. It was a very hot, humid day. The train was air conditioned and on our way from Chicago to Ann Arbor where the, where the printer was, the Chinese characters that had been pasted onto the pages began to come off the pages. They began to pop, they were put on with rubber cement. So they began to come off one by one. They would like pop off the page. <laughs> and Lillian would desperately find them on the floor and she would like you know, press them with our hand back into place. So by the time we got to the printer, we had to go through each page to make sure that the characters were properly in place. So anyway, that's the story about the first that, book. That's the story of that book. So you, so you guys got it printed. What was the response? Initially terrible. We were, again, totally shocked. <laughs> <laughs> we got, again, through some of my wife's contacts in, in publishing and in um, direct marketing, which World Book Encyclopedia does a lot of, mm-hmm. we were able to find mailing lists. So we thought, who would be interested in this book since there were no schools of acupuncture? And we decided, well, this is a, this is a serious textbook. Certainly some physicians would be interested. And if the physicians weren't, then there, the medical libraries at some of the clinics and hospitals would certainly be interested. So we put together a very fancy brochure and a cover letter, got some great endorsements, and we sent it out to a few thousand physicians, you know, sampling of, of physicians of certain types and um, hospitals, medical libraries. And I don't think we got more than a half a dozen responses, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my only memory of the time is we put these things together. <laughs> yeah, we had to hand, <laughs> hand put all the things. <laughs> Look so, all the snails. Well, I don't remember any, anything about the response. <laughs> so this raises my next question, which is, given the arduous slog with this book, initially, its sales not so good. What kept you in this game? Okay, uh, there are two things that I remember. Uh, the first is that Fortunately, both of us, well, at least I had, I had a day job. <laughs> so that there was something else to keep the money coming in. We had all these books we stored up in the attic of a big building, downtown Chicago. And we just waited. And we had a post office box return address. And every, every day or every other day, we would go over to the post office box. And one day, lo and behold, there were like six letters in the P.O. box. 
orders, real orders from people that saw or heard about this book and they wanted it. And gradually through word of mouth, people heard about the book and because it was the only book out at the time, mm -hmm. everybody wanted a copy. Well, <laughs> all of these individual people wanted copies of it. And so gradually- It began to find, the niche found it. And then yeah. schools began to open right about the same time. A bunch of schools opened in 1980, 81, 82, 83. There were a couple dozen by that time. But there was a Chinese book also on acupuncture. I can't remember the name. And some people use that book, but I think actually its presence in some ways helped us because people know, oh, there's books on, there's real books on acupuncture, not just little pamphlets or something. Right. Mm -hmm. It's true. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. All right, so that, that gave it the start. How many books have you published on Chinese medicine? Do you have an idea? Chinese medicine, probably 40-some, counting individual editions. Yeah, so the, the next step was, um, well, the next book we did was the, my teacher, Uplitcher's book, Cranial Sacral Therapy. And then when I finished my osteopathic training, this is my memory about it. Uh, it was that people were doing lots of things with Chinese herbs who didn't know anything about Chinese herbs, didn't know anything. And they were teaching in their schools and all that kind of stuff. And we had the thought, well, we can fix that. I mean, we can at least do something that is like the basic information, right? And so I worked with a uh, brilliant guy named Andy Gamble. Uh, was, I was in Boston at the time. Actually, he and I had a practice together. And that book only took three or four years, I think. Maybe th three or four very, very difficult <laughs> yeah, years. Yeah, for you. But yeah, there's a lots of stories. But that was the next. So I think before these, the Herb Materia Medica book, we weren't really sure whether we would just have a couple books and sell them or whether we would become a publisher. And uh, we decided to do this Materia Medica book, which I think was also one of the very first digitally typeset books in the world. Actually mm -hmm. worked with some people who were spinoffs of MIT. So the first edition of the Materia Medica. And then that book, had a pretty good reception and some odd things happened around it. Like it came out in like the spring 
and I had 1986. Yeah, I had people who taught, who were ran schools at the time, calling me to see if they could suppress the knowledge of this book because they didn't want the students to have access to the book before their teachers had read the book because there was lots of stuff in the book that the teachers didn't know. I just said, well, maybe you should get different teachers. <laughs> <laughs> right. But so that those books did okay. Then uh, Andy uh, later dropped out and, and Randy Barrelet, another guy that I knew from Boston, we did the formula book. And then we just started by that. Then we had like a few books. Giovanni Machocha's first we, book, we, the tongue did, The tongue diagnosis book, yeah. we did that. And so probably by the late 80s, we like, oh, this is something that is an ongoing concern that is a business. And I should say, too, that, you know, parallel with the books that we were doing in Chinese medicine, as Dan said, we did uh, John Uplicher's craniosacral therapy book. We did a few other books in osteopathy. Uplicher's book in particular did very, very well. And that, that kept us afloat. There was a lot of interest in craniosacral therapy. Yeah. And the, the Burrell books in the beginning, uh, Jean-Pierre Burrell's books, also you know, osteopathic books. Yes, in publishing, I, I think both of our first two books, and this is kind of key, were successful. Even though the, the first one was kind of slow out of the chute, they were successful. Yeah. If either of them had not been successful, we would not be in publishing. And that's just... Well, and it sounds like it was several things coming together. Number one, your hard work. And maybe it was vision or delusion. Sometimes it's hard to tell those two apart. But it's, there's a sense that you had that, there, that there's something here. And then eventually a market did arrive that, that really embraced it, mm -hmm. um, which brought you to the other things. I, you know, I've got a, another question. I mean, the, the, this history part's great. And I, I, can, I love historical stories. But I want to bring this around. And this is really more of a, a, a question, I think, for Dan, which is... You know, translating a book is so much more than just bringing words from one language into another, right? There, there's all this nuance. You've got to shift through cultural understandings. You're the medical editor of Eastland Press. Can you give us a glimpse into, from your perspective as a medical editor, what, what does it take to get a book from Chinese into English? And, and what makes for a decent translation that's useful in English? That's a big question. <laughs> And uh, I'm not sure I actually have a very good answer. Um, but I think the first thing, whenever you do any kind of translation, is you have to think, why are you doing this? And what is your goal? And I think in terms of Chinese medicine, those are actually lots of questions that you have to think very carefully about before you start the work. Because it's, if you think, oh, I just want to translate this book, that doesn't work. What does that mean? The, the people who the book is written for are completely different than the people who are going to be reading your translation. So you have to think about what, do you, what does the medicine mean? What do these things mean? What are the basic ideas? Um, so I think one decision that John and I made in the very beginning is our goal in terms of the medicine is we want our readers to feel like they own this medicine. They are part of the medicine. It's not some exotic thing that doesn't, that they have no ownership over. And so that means right away, we need to put as much as possible into English and as little as possible into transliteration. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk, this is why we did yin and yang organs instead of zhangfu, because zhangfu are something 
weird, exotic, this not, but th- but I don't think the Zongfu actually are weird and exotic, right? So, so that level of, you have to think about what do you want, uh, how you want people to interact with it, what does it mean to use it clinically? And then you ha- then once you get those things set, then you have to try to figure out not only what it means, but how to um, how to communicate. So perfectly, you would just know, oh, this concept in Chinese equals this concept in English, even if maybe it's one word in Chinese and ten words in English. And this, so it's more you want a kind of a transmission more than a translation, mm-hmm. but that's not always easy to achieve. And so that's why we started out with a kind of a gloss. So we would have an idea now, you know, glosses are, to, our, to us are very plastic. It's not like the word, every word in English words mean all sorts of different things, different contexts So Chinese words are the same. And so you have to think about, so that's, that's the thought. And then we have to get a sense of the tone of the book uh, the tone that we think will then work for, um, you know, work for our audience, and go from there. So, like the uh, when we work when the Michael and Andy and Craig worked on the Doctor You book, mm-hmm. he as I think Michael mentioned in your previous, he loves Chung Yu. He loves the adages, yes, and the idioms, the idioms that, you, that and, are impossible to understand if yeah, you don't know the background that's story. Right. And so, and also sometimes. This is um, just, no, so you have to think, well, I can either translate all these things word for word and they will be totally impenetrable, or I can think of an English adage that isn't the same words as the Chinese adage, but has a similar thing, or lots of things they say in adages in Chinese, we would never say an adage in English, it just means a certain word. Mm -hmm. So I think that book, they worked very hard on a con- we all worked very hard. I edited the book on a conversational style. Some of the other books we use more formal styles. Um, but I think to kind of get w- what you're trying to do at the end determines how you st- do the process. And I think it, you know, as, as you know from your work with the Huang Huang book, among other things, it's a tremendous amount of work. It takes hundreds and hundreds of hours of translating, editing. Now, John is, I think, the secret sauce to Eastland Press because he's an incredibly good writer. So he does the copy editing over almost all our books, and that's the main reason they read so well. So I think it's just thought this takes a lot of work. And I think part of the thing is, is, as you know, is that you just have to be willing to take as long as it takes until you get it done. Yes, and it can take, well, I, mean, I know for the book that, that we did, the Huang Huang book, 10 Keep Filming the Families. I'm thinking it was like a three-plus-year process. I, I'm, I'm having a little amnesia around it. Mm-hmm. That sounds um, right. That would be most books take three or four years. Most books take three to four years. That was the question. Yeah. Generally Sometimes speaking, they take seven or eight <laughs> or longer. Uh-huh. But I would say the, the average book, from the time the person thinks they're done with, thinks about writing it, Mm-hmm. Until it comes out, it's probably more like four or five years. So it's it's a long process. It's a long process. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's uh it's not a it's a, not an easy process. But one of the great things which I enjoy about translating is that it forces you to really understand the book. You can read something and you think, oh, I understand this really well. But then when you sit down to translate, it's like, 
Oh, that's a different story. <laughs> I have a little bit of experience with that. It, it, it's amazing how easy it is to think that you, at least for me, that I understand something that's being written in Chinese. And then when I actually have to say it to another person in, in, a, in a very clear, succinct form that will pass muster with the editor at Eastland Press, it's a whole different thing. John, from the more, I guess, technical side, or legal side, I mean, I suspect there's all kinds of issues with copyright and royalties, and, and what are, what's some of the sort of background stuff that, that, you know, those of us that read the books would never think about, but are probably daily headaches, or at least things that you've got to think about and take care of on an ongoing basis. Well, one of the things, you mentioned copyright, until I think it was 1992 or 1993, China had not signed any of the international copyright conventions. And what that means is that uh, they were publishing a lot of books that were copyrighted in the West in Chinese without paying any royalties. And similarly, a much smaller number at that time of books in Chinese were being published in the West and there were no royalties paid because there was no copyright convention. So the first book that we published, our comprehensive text, was copyright free because it was, again, published prior to the time that they had signed on to the Copyright Convention. That's no longer the case. So when we publish something now from China, if we do a translation, for example, the, your book, the Huang Huang book, we had to contract with the Chinese publisher who represents the author in uh, getting uh, permission to uh, publish in English. So we have the English language rights and we copyright them the English language version of the book. So that's... That's one factor. The other thing that I, maybe this would be a good point, wish to say, I mentioned that the first couple of books we did both did well. And Dan's um, herbal books also did well mm -hmm. in, in part. Because well, they're basically texts. They're, 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 they're texts, most they're reference books. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're often used. But the students had them before the teachers. <laughs> sure. And I think this is true with every publisher, that you have some books that kind of, pay for the other books. So we've had a few books, um, fewer than I would like, that continue to sell and because they're used as textbooks in schools and they're adopted. But there are many other books that don't. There are many other books that sell a, really a handful of copies a year, fewer than 100 copies a year. Mm. And so those are very difficult to keep in print. We have, we have, we've kept every book that we've ever published in print pretty much up until now. We're now faced with, I think, the first book we're letting go that we haven't done a new edition of, but it's um, it's a difficult process because most books don't do really well. Even books that people like, technical books like these textbooks, they they have small audiences, and um, so it's fortunate. We were very fortunate to have a few books that were adopted by the schools and continue to be used by the schools because they they help subsidize the they other subsidize books, the other books which otherwise would not be published yeah and there's some, and there's some great stuff out there this makes me wonder maybe you could go into this a little bit more about some of the challenges that a small press such as yours and, and a very specialty press faces especially here in the digital age where things can very easily be co um, copied and distributed um, without paying the fair share to the publisher you know, to keep you guys in business. How do you 
work with this these days? This, this, this is something that you certainly never would have imagined right. back in uh, Macau when, when you began this whole enterprise. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's uh, maybe John should answer. That. Well, I, I remember one episode to show you how things have changed. It used to be, you know, before you could scan and digitally launch something, find, find it on the internet, before the internet, so let's say pre-mid-90s, the problem was people photocopying your books. Right. So at the time, we thought that was a big problem. I remember, Dan, you were teaching a course, was it in Portland or something? Mm -hmm. And he was walking around the classroom and he actually came across somebody that had photocopied an entire book that we had done, which is, you know, it's a major undertaking in itself to actually photocopy a 700-page book, or maybe that was Uplitch's book. And and was costly. It cost like 10 cents or page or whatever it was at the time. But that, and, and we thought that was a problem. But that was nothing compared to, of course, now someone can photograph your book or scan your book and launch it on the internet and it's up there for everybody forever. Mm -hmm. it's, so it's, it's a problem that all publishers have. And uh, there are uh, companies that we've worked with them to, that, that go on the web and find instances where something appears and they will then issue a letter to a demand letter to take it down. Um, and it works often. In some cases, it doesn't work because it's being published in a place um, that doesn't recognize copyright, where you really have no ability to go in and stop it. Yeah. But it's still available to, for everyone in the world because it's on the internet. So it's a problem. It's a big problem. I mean, and I think publishers in general were blindsided by this. Because I remember, again, in the late 90s, you could sometimes buy a textbook and it would come with a disc that had the PDF of the book on it. And they thought that would en enable people to use it in different circumstances, mm -hmm. never thinking that it would just be like, oh, pirate, here. Oh, this, here you go. Here you go. Oh, by so, the way, share this with your friends. Share this with your yeah. friends. So I think yeah. the um, impact on all publishers, I think, is really, it's big. we're not an exception to that. Sure. And a lot of publishers go out of business in part for that reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. It occurs to me you guys have had kind of a ringside seat in uh, the way that Chinese medicine has, has developed. 
certainly here in America, and I would say probably in the West in general, in the English, well, we wouldn't say English-speaking world. How do you see the Chinese medicine world having changed from the time that you first were publishing books up till now? And, and how do you see things perhaps going in the future? Just from, from the point of view, not as practitioners, but, but as, as publishers and, and just having that particular view of uh, well, I think this phenomena. For me, and John may have a different opinion, probably up until the mid 90s, we did have a ringside seat. But as the internet became more prevalent, and that became a way not only to, for books, but all sorts of information, now we're way up in the nosebleed seats. We're not in that, we're not, we don't have a ringside seat anymore. Uh, I mean, it's just the way that we are, but I think it's, so I can't really answer that too well. But I mean, certainly, again, getting back to Dr. Yu's book, uh, I told John before we decided to do it that within a year or two of publishing that book, to me, we would know about how many people in the West were really interested in using Chinese herbal medicine as individualized prescriptions because everybody who doesn't really read Chinese who is interested in that level of the art of the medicine needs to read the book, would want to read the book. Absolutely. Yeah. And so whether that's 500 people, mm -hmm. 1,000 people, uh, we still don't, we still so don't know. So it's kind of a litmus test it's right now. It's kind of a litmus test. And yeah. I think it's going to be on the low side from, from our uh, experiences so far. So that's just you know that that's just the way it is you know uh, people don't practice that way. Uh, so I think uh, the development um, is that probably in the 70s and 80s, maybe even early 90s, people were more seekers, and so they were more interested. They 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 were interested. If they got into Chinese medicine, they were some kind of not mainstream people. And they were, by and large, really interested in learning lots of different things. And therefore, for our business, that was good. You know, I've met lots of people, I would say, the majority of people I met, just the being around uh, who did Chinese medicine up until 2000, approximately, they had almost, most of them had most of our books on Chinese medicine. Exactly. Right. They there, was like, a, there was a level of excitement anytime we published a book. And this was true, I think, of other people, too. You know, at Red Wing, if they did a new book, everyone got everything that was available because there was so little out there. Mm -hmm. So if a new book came out, you would get it. You know, good, bad or indifferent, you would get it. And I think, as Dan said, from mid-90-ish onward, that has diminished somewhat. Um, there were more publishers, more people got into the business, although many more have gotten out since, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you guys have had some uh, longevity in this business. Yeah, yeah. and it, so I think it's just people don't maybe don't learn that way so much anymore. The books aren't so important to them anymore. It's I mean, one of the side effects of the success of Chinese medicine in the West is it's just a profession. You know, you get out of college, you don't know what to do. Well, I want to do something with medicine, something about either. Chinese medicine itself is kind of attractive, or the 
how long the study is versus other kinds of things is kind of attractive. There's all sorts of different reasons, but it's not necessarily, oh, I need to do this, right? I need to find this out. I need to start on this journey that I don't know where it's going to take me. It's very common, I think, now. It's like, oh, I want to, be, I want to get this training, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to have this little practice and or whatever. So I think that sense of excitement about all sorts of things, not only the new things, but excitement about the basic. Because, you know, in Chinese medicine, one of the great things about it is you just spiral around the same information over and over again. And as every time you spiral around, spiral around, you get a little bit more. Uh, from our perspective, now, again, we're not ringside seats anymore. We're way up, you know, in the second gal- balcony looking down. But it looks like that's not there so much. Would you say that people are in some ways, just generally speaking, less interested in the nuances? It's like, oh, here's this thing. We can make it work. We can get paid. We can have a living. Verse, versa. Speaking as publishers, we have no, you have no idea. We have no idea. I can, I can just say this, that if a book is used as a, as a required textbook, I mean, that, the field has become that way. Like, like everything else. Is it going to be on the test? Oh, yeah. Am I going to be tested on this? Do I have to have the book because it's a required text? Those books continue to sell. But books that are less central to a curriculum, to a required curriculum, those, it's a much, much smaller audience. So I take from that that there is a much smaller group of people who are seriously interested in, you know, Chinese medicine as... Um, something very unique, um, as opposed to just another profession. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that Chinese medicine, it's, it kind of strikes me in, in hanging out at some of the schools also. There's a real difference in students nowadays. Also, John does, he knows more than me by far because he goes to conferences, sells books and things like that. I think it's, I don't want to paint too broad of a, with too broad of a brush. So we have some exceptions. I would think, and again, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Wang Jui and Jason Robertson's book, mm-hmm. that struck a nerve in people, in part because of the information, in part because of the way it was communicated. That's a book, I think, among our Chinese medicine non-required books, that is the bestseller. Mm-hmm. So there is still, you know, it's, so it's, some of it may just be the books put out aren't that interesting to people but um i think there there are exceptions so it's not like everyone's like but i think as a general tone and again in some ways it may be better for the patients it's just a profession you don't have these wacky seekers trying to you know plummet the depths of the universe when they just want to be able to walk get out of bed in the morning um so you know that that's a difference question but i think in general i would agree but there are some exceptions and when dan says bestseller what we're talking about is several hundred copies a year we're not talking about a million copies we're not talking about many thousands of copies we do have a couple books that sell like over a thousand copies a year but that's those are rare books and um and i agree and i when i'm when i go to conferences and i'm selling the book there are still students that come up that have the same energy and the same excitement that, that people had when we started out. They're, they're still there for sure. You know, they just want to know everything that they want to get, everything that I've got, you know, on, on the table. But there are just fewer of them. 
There are just fewer. It seems like you guys are coming out with something at least once a year, sometimes, sometimes more often. Can you give us a, a little glimpse of some books in the pipe that we uh, might be seeing in the sure. near future? I mean, I think um, we have a, some really interesting things coming yeah. up. One of them is, one, this is actually an example of a few of the things that we've been saying. One of my favorite books that was not done by Eastland Press was Fluid Physiology by Steve Clavey. Oh, yeah. It's a great book. It's a great book. So uh, That's a book that they should translate back into Chinese. It would be very helpful, very helpful. for the Chinese. Yes. So uh, it was published by Elsevier, a very big company that's basically gotten out of all but assigned textbooks in Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. And they stopped printing his book. And so we picked it up. And we've been working, we edited it very slightly and changed the terminology and Steve put some more work in it. And early next year, the third edition of that book. Fluid Physiology and Pathology in Chinese Medicine. From Eastland Press. From Eastland Press. Can I pre-order this thing? Well, again, to be completely honest, if if your second edition is not completely torn up, there's no reason to order it. I still have the first edition. Yeah. Someone, second, tried, second someone, someone tried to borrow it from me and it was yeah. like, doesn't leave the clinic. Yeah. yeah. So that'll come out. I think um, there's been the series of kind of internal medicine books by Will McLean, another guy from, mm-hmm. from Australia. Australia. Yeah. And so uh, we've been working with him to publish basically as one book, all of it. Right, so he published three volumes over a period of 10 years, beginning in 1998. I think he did his last one in 2010. Mm-hmm. And so we're now pulling all three of them together, putting them in, in, in one volume. He's updated a lot of material. It's a fabulous book. Right. And again, this turns about time. I don't know how long it took him 10 or 15 years to do it before, but when we decided, okay, let's do this project, that was almost four years ago. So just him redoing a book took him four years. He's a very, you know, he's a very busy practitioner, and, but in his, a big part of his time is devoted to doing this stuff. So it's just a tremendous amount of work. That should also come out early next year. And that'll be a fabulous resource, I think, for people. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And then uh, I think another book that will come out really soon from one of our favorite authors, though not maybe one of our best-selling authors, is uh, we've been really lucky through a guy who lives around here, Stephen Brown, mm-hmm. to be able to give some of this fantastic, you know, master Japanese acupuncturist Shudo Denmei's books. And the first one came out, I think, in the late 80s, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so we are doing like a pretty sizable volume of his case histories uh, that will also come out early next year. So we have a bunch of stuff in the hopper. So we're not letting the internet keep us down. We see. (laughs) Great. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're both busy with Eastland Press and in your lives and the other things, Dan, your practice and and who knows what else. So thanks for so much much for being here today, taking the time. Any last uh, comments for our listeners before Thanks we... Thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about our, our business, which is near and dear to our hearts for actually for the vast majority of our lives. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's still exciting. I will say that there's a real kick to publishing a new book. It never goes away. 
I mean, even if we're publishing somebody else's book, it never goes away. It's, a, it's just an exciting thing to do. I mean, I can say partly from the author, partly from the publisher, like when we do the herb books, the herb and formula, I put in a few herbs or a few formulas that are not in that type of book in China because I think they're really interesting and useful. And when I see someone do a case with like, oh, they use that formula. So I know- You know where it came from. I know, but it's like, that's the satisfaction <laughs> of the job. Like, oh, yeah. if I hadn't done that, that person would not probably not have been helped at least so well. Uh, so that I think is another kick that, you know, we're actually, our goal is to help people medicine, and help them. And I think when we support the medicine, because medicine helps people. And so I think that another kick that we are able to help people all over the world by sitting here and, you know, now this, we're working on translation or editing or stuff like that. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.